one of the all-time favorite shows. Welcome to episode 98 of Because You're Home. So we are in the new year and kind of with the new year, you would get new year resolutions and you might have like a new perspective on life. So with that in mind, I decided to think of what perspective is there maybe not so looked at so much in horror movies. And that is the perspective of the killer or the villain. And more importantly, why the audience, like why people are interested in the point of view kind of perspective of the killer in horror movies. So there's a belief that seeing a horror movie from the perspective of the killer wouldn't be the best idea since it might be a little too frenzied and horrifying for the audience to endure. But one has to think of the experience it might give to step into the mind of someone that doesn't follow social norms and has a truly skewed sense of how things should be. There are plenty of movies that show the story from the angle of the troubled mind but to feel as though you're in the killer shoes is something that a lot of people do feel would be surreal. And to be honest, um, it's also an experience that some folks enjoy since it gives another layer to various stories that might otherwise be a little lacking in dimension and scope. Obviously, there have to be other points of view in the movie, or it might be easy to think that the filmmaker is attempting to gain more than a little sympathy for the villain. But by including the perspective of the killer, it completes the movie in a way that is hard to do without diving a bit deeper into characters. So one of the things I decided to look into, it's more, there are going to be some mention of films in this, obviously, because, you know, film podcast. But I also decided to kind of just focus in on one of the original horror movies that looks into the mind of the serial killer, the perspective of the serial killer. And that is the 1960s film, Peeping Tom, which is a great movie. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. Um, so most horror and serial killer films have a tendency to, to depict the killer as sometimes mysterious figure who only shows up when it's time for him or her to commit a heinous act of murder. The main protagonist in a horror film is usually the person that will eventually defeat the murderer, who's usually the main antagonist. However, in Peeping Tom, Mark Lewis, who's the murderer, sorry, spoiler alert, but you find that one out pretty soon into the film. Um, he is the main focus of the story, as opposed to his victims. This gives a rare introspective into what the killer thinks and feels in regards to his killing ways. It lets the audience get to know the character on a deeper level, to the point where the audience begins to empathize with the killer, to which I actually found myself doing in this film as well. I have to say, like I said, brilliant film. So the film allows the killer, Mark Lewis, to explain his motives and reasons for doing what he does. The film makes a powerful statement that many horror films stray away from. Peeping Tom lets its audience know that not every killer is born the way they are. Many have experienced some sort of psychological trauma that led them towards their actions. The cinematography adds to the perspective of the killer. Most of the film is from the point of view perspective from Mark Lewis's camera. We see what he sees and in some way, we become part of his kill. All of these elements lead toward Mark being considered the hero of the story for a profound amount of time, of course, until he attempts to murder his love interest, Helen. In his regular interactions with people, Mark does not come off as a killer or a psychopath. He is timid and quiet and kind. He hides, but what he hides is psychotic tendencies and he hides them quite well. And he presents himself as the last person you would expect to do such a thing. 
which is actually a common characteristic among accomplished serial killers. So I guess what I'm that explains how they get away with it long enough to become serial killers. It even gets to the point where I personally forgot he was the killer during his interactions with his love interest, Helen. In the 1960s, it was still controversial to present a killer as the protagonist of a film, which I think is what led this film to be universally panned by critics. It's come back as a cult classic, but at the time, it was just too controversial. It was ahead of its time in the level of depth it created within a main antagonist who normally would have no such emphasis placed on the backstory. I love learning more about why characters with evil motives decided to choose their path. It creates an interest and an investment in the character that otherwise would not have existed. Peeping Tom creates, sorry, Peeping Tom leaves me thinking about what it was like growing up for poor Mark Lewis and at what point did he snap? Another aspect I'm going to be discussing in this episode is the actual point of view horror movies and how it became so popular. In the 1960s and 70s, horror shifted stylistically alongside narrative and thematic changes, typically in favour of more immediate visceral aims. Most obviously, this change came through spectacles of violence, but also through documentary-inflected camera work and an increased reliance on off-screen space. These stylistic shifts were, in part, a reaction to the genre's turn away from traditional monstrosities. When the fearsome spectacles of monsters was no longer the defining trait of horror, the genre found other ways to distinguish itself. Without the otherworldly terrors of ghosts and goblins, what separates a killer with a knife or a chainsaw from, say, a killer with a gun in a gangster movie? The answer was largely formal. If traditional monsters are monsters because they exist physically at the edges of our realms of understanding, then modern horror sought to make it physiologically human killers sufficiently fearsome and unfathomable through stylistic innovations. Cinematography became crucial to horror's aesthetic and to its creation of threatening, dangerous monsters. Monsters and killers moved off screen and lurking, roving cameras signaled to the audience that something was out there watching and waiting to attack. This transformation becomes formalized and focused through what I call killer POV. An unattributed subjective camera, killer POV or point of view, is unique to horror. It places a threat within a scene without visualizing it. The technique was quickly adopted as a method for attributing a sort of unfathomable fearsomeness to the physiological, unexceptional killers of the 1970s horror. I mean, think about it. If there wasn't that whole point of view thing for Michael Myers, he's just a silent man roving around, stabbing people. I mean, stabbing and strangling and that. It is still terrifying, but I mean, if there wasn't the, especially the opening of the film, if there wasn't that, would Halloween have been as popular even to this day as it was when it released? So Black Christmas was one of the earliest North American films to employ killer POV extensively. The technique comes from the pioneering Italian gialli of Mario Bava and Dario Argento. Brief killer POV sequences appear in Argento's Birds with the, with the Crystal Plumage in 1969 and Bava's Twitch of Death Nerve, or Riazone a Catena, in 1971. The technique would go on to play a major role in Argento's filmography, especially becoming a major component of later films, such as the influential Deep Red or Profondo Rosso in 1976 and Opera in 19, 
1976 for Profondo Rosso, if I didn't say that, and opera was in 1987. In Argento's and Bava's films, killer POV plays a crucial narrative purpose. In many ways, these films follow <laughs> these films follow the narrative structures of mysteries, and killer POV allows attacks and other scenes in which the murderer plays a role to be shown on screen without revealing the murderer's identity to the viewer. In that sense, it is a stylistic equivalent of the black gloves and mask of Bava's Blood and Black Lace, say Donald Per Lassassino, in 1964, and similarly concealing costuming in Argento's early films. Once the technique spreads through North American cinema, it moves beyond mystery narratives. Although Black Christmas, like the Italian films, has obvious mystery elements, it de-emphasizes them and, in fact, never reveals the killer's identity. Further, the systematic extensive use of killer POV in Black Christmas serves an additional function, one the subsequent films will capitalize on even as the remaining mystery genre trappings fall away. These films recognize that keeping the killer off screen is essential to maintaining the threatening character of their killers. Being off screen is precisely what makes them fearsome. Although Black Christmas's killer's movements are carefully mapped out within the house, much more so than in many subsequent slasher films, killer POV here creates a sense of near omnipresence. In Halloween, in 1978, the excellent opening killer POV sequence grants credibility to the opening attack, in which a young boy attacks his older teenage sister. The delay of this revelation creates a suspenseful, a suspenseful curiosity and there is a friction of suspense, oh sorry, a friction of surprise when the young Michael Myers is revealed to be the killer. I personally feel that if they hadn't done it in such a tension building, suspenseful way of hiding who the killer was until the big reveal after the opening sequence, if we just knew that a six-year-old boy was killing his sister, um, was he six? Was he one? Anyway, young boy. You would find it to be almost laughable that he managed to get away with it. I know he obviously took his sister by surprise when he was killing her, but still just, you know, kind of unbelievable. <clears throat> Perhaps the most famous, most iconic and most influential killer POV shots, however, came from outside of the slasher tradition in Steven Spielberg's Jaws from 1975, capping off its celebrated opening scene and revived again for the film's second attack, a camera moving underwater, angling upwards towards an unsuspecting young woman swimming alone. When the camera reaches its target, the shot cuts above the water to show the swimmer being painfully tugged from below. Like all of the above examples, this sequence allows for the depiction of an attack without showing the attacker. So point of view would equal identification, as Carol Clover asserts, arguing the viewer of the typical slasher is linked in this way with the killer in the early part of the film. Roger Ebert famously railed against what he called the violence against women films and killer POVs, which was a key part of his objection. Ebert argued it is a truism in film strategy that all else being equal, when the camera takes a point of view, the audience is being directed to adopt the same point of view claiming that the films therefore displaced the villain from his traditional place within the film and moved him into the audience. This most influential accounts of killer POV have understood it to be inviting, again, and even demanding identification with the killer. 
using it as evidence that horror viewers sympathise with monsters and killers. The implication, of course, is that horror films are sadistic, misogynistic and inciting. And I mentioned Carol Clover just there a couple of seconds ago. She was the writer of Men, Women and Chainsaws. And it's a book that I think was written, Jesus, in originally in the 70s or 80s. And it's had numerous, numerous um, republications and, and more editions made to it with different openings. Um, if anyone is, she really goes into the whole POV films, the male gaze, like, oh, that woman was one of the first scholastic women really to take a look into it and put it down and it is I have it myself it's and it's an extensive read I haven't even finished I've, I've been picking and choosing my way through it um it's if anyone is interested into that side and discovering like how not necessarily how women view those type of slasher movies now because it is always like uh we just have the perspective of um, from a killer coming into a sorority house and then slashing and hacking his way through whilst they're trying to sleep or at a party. It's like with POV killers, it is mainly the killing of women. So that's obviously what Roger Ebert had a problem with because it it's bringing the audience into the kill, as he says, so it makes them a part of it and could maybe, maybe if someone was, you know, highly influential um or sorry easily influenced they could go oh this is giving me a tickle and this is making me think of something that I never would have entertained but now I feel like I'm the one holding the knife or I'm the one holding the chainsaw so I get where his worry was um and it did take many many decades before women weren't so cannon fodder-esque in harmonies it still is an easy an easy kill when you have as i mentioned before and myself and grace mentioned in our women in horror month um selection of episodes we did uh last year and one of them we had looked at was you know like the dumb blonde not necessarily always being blonde but you know like the dumb female character who is like the first to go so that has been used in kind of pov kills and just other slasher films like the abuse of women and the murder of women is something that was just easy, you know, like low hanging fruit in slasher films, which is, I suppose, one of the reasons why it took me so long to even watch slasher films or to find them in any way entertaining. Modern slasher films now, I think, are have come along a lot better than how they were. But anyway, so I have a selection, uh, a small selection of movies that are told from the perspective of the killer. So obviously like one of the more famous ones we have is 1978's Halloween. So seeing things from Michael's point of view isn't just creepy, it's almost void. As though there's nothing there but an unending need for violence, a switch that's been struck on overdrive too long and leads to the individual to kill relentlessly and endlessly because he can. Not every Halloween movie features this type of experience, but it's easy to see why. This is the kind of killer that doesn't say much of anything, doesn't stop, and is pretty impossible to read since he's all about the stalk and attack mode and not much else. It might be easy to say that Michael's a one-dimensional killer, but the many movies that came along after the first one proves otherwise. And then we have Maniac. 
So Frank Zito misses his mother, who was killed in a car accident years before. She was abusive to him and made money selling her body, but Frank still misses her. He tries to keep her from leaving him and reform her evil ways by killing young women and putting their scalps on mannequins, which he displays around his apartment. Photographer Anna Dan Tony takes a picture of him in the park and he pursues and befriends her. Is she the one he has been looking for or just another one of his mother wannabes? So this film is, you know, disturbing is a mild word to use when describing the story since Frank is a certified nutjob as well as a schizophrenic. But there are likely to be those out there that would claim that his scalping of women is a sure sign of a deeper, more unstable mental issue that's not his fault. There's at least one bit of truth to that. But once that bell is rung, the individual with the issue isn't really worth the effort it might take to bring them back from the brink. Some might argue against that point, but hopefully those arguments would go by the wayside if the person in question actively tried to resist any help they might be given. Another fantastic film and one that I think really takes advantage of the um, perspective of the killer is the brilliant film Behind the Mask, The the Rise of Leslie Vernon. And shout out to Shauna whenever she hears this episode, because when she visited from Canada, we had a discussion about this film and I highly recommended her to watch it. You better watch it, Shauna. In fact, if you haven't watched it, anyone listening, my God, go listen to it. I think it was made in 2006. I don't know where you could find it, but oh my God, it's <laughs> his training for being a slasher. I think like it, it is, it's, it's a fantastic film. It really is uh, like there can only be one of them, but it it is brilliant. So how many killers would go to the trouble to make a documentary of what they're about to do? This movie was one of the craziest around, if only because the killer wasn't exactly on the level and was taking people through the steps of what was going to happen. Even when the intended victims went off script, the killing doesn't end since the killer has apparently anticipated just about everything that's going to happen. The movie is creepy enough, but learning that the killer isn't who they say they are is even worse, since it means the other characters have to deal with someone they really don't understand. Another fantastic film that's done from the perspective of the killer is American Psycho, because not only is it done by the perspective or done in the perspective of the killer, it's narrated um, by said character. So we have Patrick Bateman has been a subject of interest for a while now since he narrates a good chunk of his own story. And a lot of it is uniquely terrifying since the guy is a straight up psycho that has no regard for anyone else. But the world he lives in appears to be so blissfully unaware of the things he does that a lot of people believe a lot of this movie is happening in his head and that he has no knowledge of it until later. By the time the movie ends, one has to really sit and wonder just how much of it is going on in the guy's fractured mind and how much he's actually guilty of. And it's quite a mess to sort out. And it. This is a film I haven't seen, but I know a lot about, and it's very much so in the true crime genre, as well as from a killer's point of view. We have Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. If the other movies are in this list have been hard to watch, this one is damn near impossible, according to the um what was the website? The website. I will put a link to the articles I used for influence on this. Um, but yeah. It is apparently a very hard watch because it's just so real and true to the story, so they say. Um, 
So there is a use of morality in it, but it's the fact that it's tossed about like an everyday item and then abandoned so casually, it makes it about as ineffective as a mask after Halloween. Ah, right. It's not, it's based on a true story, but apparently it's loosely based on a serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas. And this film follows Henry and his roommate, Otis, who Henry introduces to murdering randomly selected people. The killing spree depicted in the film starts after Otis's sister Becky comes to stay with them. The people they kill are strangers and in one particularly gruesome attack, kill all three members of a family during a home invasion. Henry lacks compassion in everything he does and isn't the kind to leave behind witnesses of any kind. Henry is a seriously deranged killer individual that appears to attract other deranged individuals, such as Otis. And yet Henry still thinks... Still, sorry, and yet Henry still has lines that he won't cross, at least until he sees no other choice. For instance, saving a woman from being raped only to kill her and chop her up later doesn't denote a rational mind after all. So they were just a brief selection of movies if you're interested in watching films that take after the perspective of the killer. And so if this has sparked interest in you, you might kind of also think that there are also one of the, the hooks on horror films as well of this type of POV or perspective of the killer is also kind of like the, our interest in the villains themselves of the horror movies. Um, while horror is great when it brings a body count, the really memorable moments aren't the kills, but the killers themselves. In order for that to happen, the villers, villains have to be memorable and they have to give us reason to want to return to them. So the introduction of Dr. Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs is one of my favourite villain introductions ever, especially because we get a taste, oink, oink, of his horrific deeds before we even see his face. Jack Crawford warns Clarice Starling about his ability to manipulate and deceive, saying she doesn't want Hannibal Lecter inside her head. Then Dr. Chilton shows her photographs of a nurse that was assaulted by Lecter, supposedly destroying her face. We see none of these photos, we don't even know what he looks like up until Sterling walks down that hallway and the camera exposes us to him, standing like a statue amidst his beautiful drawings. What we end up witnessing is a character who is urbane, charming, well-spoken and attentive to details. But there are glimmers of his madness in everything he does. It's the way he looks at Clarice and barely blinks. It's how he tucks his head so that he looks at her from beneath his brow. It's how he tries and succeeds, although she'll never admit it, to scare her with his notoriety and his stories. And then we all know the father beans and candy story, not because of the details, but because of his iconic, yeah, apologies, can't get it, my lips are too dry, sound afterwards. All of this is what makes Lecter so interesting and fascinating. He is obviously a terrifying monstrosity, yet his presentation and writing allows him to be playful, to lull viewers into a sense of safety. It's at those points that Lecter decides to strike, exposing his psychotic genius and revealing how much we should actually fear him. It's because of all that that I find myself constantly drawn back to his tales. Over the Nightmare of Elm Street franchise, the audience has had a chance to get the history of Freddy and what brought him to commit the murders on all those schoolchildren. Starting with his childhood, he was bullied and mocked as a kid. The story of his conception was a source of great mirth to his peers. 
as he grew older, his own psychotic tendencies began to manifest more and more in the form of self-harm and torture of small animals. From here, he began his stint as the Springwood Slasher, a serial killer of children. After his arrest, the subsequent trial, and the failing of the criminal system to go by the books and follow proper protocol, Freddie's freedom is what sent the parents of Springwood over the edge and into his territory. They trapped him in the boiler room where he killed the children and they then burned him alive. It is that action that makes him so interesting, that he would cause such outrage and vitriol so as to make normal everyday people sink to his level and commit murder, which is incredible in my eyes. That speaks levels as to his character and the impact he has. Of course, then there's Freddie himself, who is a delight. Obviously, helped very much so by Robert Ungland. Don't know if it could be done by anyone else. He is the character. The character is him. Voila. He's funny, scary, conniving, deceptive, and knows how to play with his prey before he strikes. Even in the hated, and rightfully so, remake, there's a great scene where Freddie kills Jesse, only to explain that once the heart stops, there is still seven minutes during which the brain remains active. He doesn't simply kill to end a life, he kills to enjoy every second of it, to establish his dominance and power. That's what gives him depth more than any other of the villains. The first Child's Play film is a classic that actually scared the crap out of me when I first watched it, because it's dull. Let's face it, it's a doll that kills people and I, I would find, you know, go on, anyone, especially a girl who's had like maybe porcelain dolls or anyone who's had a doll and middle of the night and you see it standing in the corner of your room when you're a small child, obviously, and you're like, is it real? Is it not real? What's happening? So it also, and I just mean the original film here, still holds up really well and the sequels are, well, if anything, they're entertaining. What makes him so intriguing to me is that he himself is under a deadline of sorts. Having transferred his soul into the good guy doll, Charles Chucky Lee Ray, aka the Lakeshore Strangler, learns that he must do the ritual again and move his soul into the body of the first person he let know that he was alive. If he doesn't do this, his soul will be trapped forever into the body of the doll, which will slowly become human. As with Freddy, Chucky is witty, funny and a hunter. He too toys with his victims, and it's not just because he's a toy himself. It's because he legitimately enjoys it. His delight in killing is horrifying, and yet he himself is such a masterful manipulator that you can't help but want to pal around with him a bit. That we get to see so much of the villain and follow his path to understanding his situation and how to fix it is what makes Chucky interesting. We are forced to stay in his company, essentially being made to empathise with his predicament. In Psycho, Norman Bates is the seemingly picture-perfect example of awkward innocence. He works at the motel that his mother owns because he wants to remain close to her, even though he hates what she's become. It's during a scene when he converses with Marion over their sandwiches that we get a suspicion that there's something wrong with Norman. When he discusses his relationship with his mother and her mental illness, Marion suggests that he place his mother someplace. It's at this moment when he leans forward and says, you mean an institution, a madhouse? Suddenly, there is an intensity, like confidence that we haven't seen in him before up until this point. The classic music rises sinisterly and we suddenly have a different person altogether on the screen. 
One that Marion Crane fears as Norman describes what it's like to be in an institution and ends up saying that his mother is harmless and it's just that she goes a little mad sometimes, adding the famous line that we all go a little mad sometimes. What Anthony Perkins brings to Norman is a sophisticated and nuanced performance that goes from a simpleton to a sharp and angry wordsmith that has clearly experienced pain and trauma to a deceiver and manipulator, and finally, to a broken individual, one that clearly isn't well. It's the performance of a lifetime and the creation of a character that still haunts viewers to this day. With these example, it's examples, it's the time and consideration that was taken into building these characters, into making them interesting. Give me villains that have depth. Give me villains that have reason. Give me villains that make me question my own character as I find myself cheering them on. After all, realizing that a bit of myself can be found in someone like Norman Bates or Hannibal Lecter is what's really scary after all. So there we have it. This episode was a little bit smaller and shorter than the rest of them because instead of watching five or three or however many films that were done from the perspective, I just decided to kind of look into not just the films themselves, but why there is a want for them, why they're popular. And obviously it's because we all like to spend an hour and a half in the boots of a killer and see how it feels and what I hope for everyone in this world is that it just stays right there in your imagination, in your seat in the cinema, watching the screen. And uh, one thing you could take away is just, just keep it there. Yeah, keep it all in your head. So thanks very much for listening. And be sure to give us a follow on our socials on Instagram with an underscore between each word. And that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also listen to us on most podcast platforms. Um, if you listen to us on Spotify or Amazon, feel free to give us a rate and review. And if you don't fancy that, um, but you also still like what you hear, then just go tell a friend. Word of mouth. It's what gets things done. So I will chat to you later. Bye bye.